Good day, everyone. My name is Stefan Pretorius, the Chief Technology Officer for WPP, and it is my pleasure today to welcome you to WPP's Metaverse and More Academy podcast, where we'll be discussing a wide range of Metaverse and Web3 related topics with experts from the WPP network and special guests from the industry at large. As we cover both established concepts and track new developments in the space, we hope this series is informational and inspirational. Thank you for coming on the journey with us. Please sit back and enjoy another exciting discussion about the metaverse and more. Hello, and welcome to another episode of WPP's Metaverse and More Academy podcast series, where we cover topics about and related to the metaverse. I'm your host for this episode, Dale Immerman. I'm WPP's VP of Immersive Technology and AI. And in this episode, we may be discussing things relating to the metaverse, such as augmented reality, virtual reality, virtual worlds, NFTs, blockchain, and the like. And if you're not comfortable with any of these topics, I might suggest that you also tune into our season one episodes, which provide a wonderful introduction to these topics. In season two, we're looking at the most immediate metaverse opportunities, immersive technology with a spotlight on augmented reality, the applications, how to leverage them in specific ways, and strategies, including conceptualizing and understanding AR usages, effective AR design techniques, considerations for building experiences, launching campaigns using these technologies, and of course, tracking and measuring so that we can learn and gain insights. But our first episode focuses on contextualizing AR and the metaverse with our fantastic guest, Matthew Ball. He's an investor, producer, and author of The Metaverse and How It Will Revolutionize Everything. Welcome, Matthew. Nice to see you. Likewise, likewise. It's been a while since we've chatted, um, but we were able to have a brief catch-up uh, earlier in the week. And um, I've read some of your content that you've put online recently. And so I suppose I wanted to jump right in and, and, and talk about you know the state of the metaverse in 2023. It's It was the word on everybody's lips in 2022. Some dubbed it the M word. Um, and um, we know that trends evolve and technology evolves um, and AI is a hot topic this year. But what what is the state of the metaverse in, in 2023 from your perspective? So look, it's quite reasonable that individuals feel oversaturated with the term. We're of course familiar with hype cycles, with buzzwords, with Ideas which are hyped long before they seem ready for prime time, such as autonomous vehicles, or buzzwords which are hyped longer than the relevant products remain in market. 3D TVs are such an instance. In the case of the metaverse, it has certainly been exceeded by the term AI in popularity and use. But even AI, sudden though its surge has been in the last six or so months, was starting from a much higher base. It was a popular term. It pioneered many categories for decades. To put this in context, the metaverse was coined in 1992, of course, for the first 29 years of its existence. It was used in fewer than two dozen securities filings in the United States. In 2021, it was 250 that year alone. In 2022, it was 3,000. That's the degree, the whiplash that we encountered with that term. You might be surprised to find out that in 2023, it's holding up better than some headlines would tell you. We're actually at an annualized pace to hit roughly 3,000 again this year. But it's doubtlessly true that buzz around the term metaverse has receded, if arguably gone negative. 
At the same time, we should not mistake this for a lack of progress, let alone regression. The number of virtual worlds produced each year, the number of people inside them, the amount of time and money spent in these worlds and the cultural importance of these worlds continues to grow. And the deployment of technologies which support these applications, 3D simulation, game engines, mixed reality headsets, they continue to expand in capability and deployment, and they're increasingly used in healthcare, industrial design, civic management, automotive and aerospace use cases. And so as I look towards the rest of this year, but certainly its prospects for 24 and 2025, it's quieter, it's a little bit more clear, but just as every year since 1950s video games, it's grown. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. And you touch on cultural importance of virtual worlds. Um, how, 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 are you, how are you seeing how are you seeing virtual worlds sort of shape culture, um, even though it's, it's, I would argue, it's in its infancy at this point? It both is and isn't in its infancy. I think if you take a look at the popularity of some of the virtual worlds, Tim Sweeney, the founder and CEO of Epic Games, likes to point out that there's about a half billion or more people who engage in the major social 3D platforms, Fortnite, Roblox, Minecraft on a monthly basis. When you take a look at Roblox alone, you're talking about 65 million people daily, more than 300 million on that platform alone. That's infant in terms of total penetration of the internet, but of course, a decade ago, it would look extraordinary. But irrespective of whether or not we want to say it's small or large, we want to compare to 2023 or 2008, when WhatsApp launched as an example, I think what's important is to recognize that the growth of these social 3D spaces is actually counter to nearly every other digital category post-pandemic. We have seen these pullbacks of all of these supposed pandemic darlings of Zoom, of Shopify, of Peloton. One of the most remarkable figures remains the fact that in 2020, U.S. e-commerce as a share of addressable retail was essentially where we expected it to be in 2025, 2026. That was the pull forward, the acceleration. You draw the 2010 to 2019 trend line and where we were in 2020 was years ahead of where we expected. But in 2023, we are back to exactly where we would have been. If you drew that trend line from 2019 out, you would sit here in July 2023 and be right. But when you take a look at Roblox, the reverse is true. That platform is up 25% year over year in users, in usage, in global reach, in the amount of money spent and the developer incomes. It is not just larger than it was pre-pandemic, it is growing faster than it was pre-pandemic. Streaming, contracting, even classic video gaming, if you can believe it, shrunk by 6% in the United States last year. But the category of social, quote-unquote, metaverse platforms is actually vibrant, growing faster. Yeah, we, we actually see that as well. If, if I look at the work that our agencies and our, and our customers are, are doing in this realm, um, we've seen a huge rise um, specifically in Roblox, as you, as you pointed out, or, or platforms like Fortnite, brands wanting to do things in these platforms. And what I'm seeing is a 
far more thought out approach, both from our agencies and from brands. Um, I'm intrigued to, to understand from you what what you maybe saw as some pitfalls or errors made made by businesses, I suppose, during the hype year last year um, or over the last two years and um, how, how you feel that they they might approach, continue to approach utilizing these platforms um, going forward um, now that they're maybe not so pressurized due to the hype. That's right. I would say that there's three big takeaways. The first was it is clear that there was a rush to do a metaverse thing. And I don't mean to be overly critical. There can be legitimate reasons for that. One is you do want to make a demonstration to your customers, your shareholders, your stakeholders. You want to rally your internal teams. There isn't anything inherently wrong with saying we need to do something, quote unquote, metaverse. But that connects to the second problem, which is more often than not, that rush and the term, which is not super helpful, obfuscated the practical truth of what we were talking about. If you mean let's build a digital twin of our bottling company, you know, you're a beverage company, then we can say digital twin. We can be realistic about what that digital twin will or will not provide and when. If the answer is let's do a video game integration, then we should say that. Monster Energy Drink had a terrific integration into the title Death Stranding. It was a little blunt, mostly from camera angles, but it's one where you can say tens of millions of people saw an authentic integration that was contextual, that was high quality and was cool. Didn't require you to brand it as metaverse. And if we mean let's build a virtual world within Roblox, then let's say let's build a virtual world within Roblox. The merits of that are not just optical, they're clarifying. You talk about specific metrics, about specific timelines. And the third major advantage is if you separate the rush from the reality, if you're specific about what it is you actually want to achieve versus a long-term vision, you can better interrogate the purpose of what you're doing. And I would tell you that, especially from the brand perspective, a lot of companies started by saying, we have a presence on the internet, we have a presence on an app store, therefore we need a presence in Minecraft or Roblox. And I agree, you probably need a presence, but often didn't interrogate what do customers want from that presence. And there are brands, which I won't call out individually, that conflated those two things. And so, for example, many of us think about some top consumer brands when we get home. Many of us attach our identity to those brands as well. But most people don't come home and say, I want to live in every brand I patron's virtual world while I sit at home and talk with my friends. They may want to interact with some of them. They may want a virtual good, a t-shirt, but we shouldn't separate the utility of a restaurant or a retail store or frankly, a medical practice with what children in particular want to do at home. And so if you skip over the, what's the purpose? If you're vague about what the actual thing you're doing is, it's harder to closely examine, well, what are the people on the other side of this one? Why does a nine-year-old, 12-year-old or 25-year-old who comes home from school or work exhausted, why do they want us in this place? And I think that that has changed in 23. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you draw that 
that that contrast to I suppose social media and and that first internet wave um, previously where you know we would ask brands the same question of wh- why is it you feel you belong in people's Twitter feed or or, or within their Instagram feed you know they're going there for a reason um, and and you're there to interrupt them but we know on a lot of these platforms the people might often be called the product right. Um, and, and the advertising can drive that. But really what you spoke about that was most intriguing for me and, and and I think is most valuable for a lot of our listeners was your second point, which is around really just calling things what they are. Um, you know, I find having dealt with a lot of brands over the past year or two in, in these realms, um, they, they have a way of getting into analysis paralysis and 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 really stuck on on the definitions as opposed to just doing um and i think what what happens or at least what i see is there's a lot of anxiety around the different technologies that are actually accessible for them to leverage right now and i often tell them you know the metaverse isn't a technology per se as much as as much as it is a, a, a subject or a, a philosophical term um what are the practical things, I mean, outside of virtual worlds and gaming that brands can be accessing or looking at um, using today to engage with, with, with their fans or consumers? Well, so first I'll hit your point on, on the philosophy or the idea. I think that's quite right. Look, the term metaverse has become so embroiled in various inheritances. One is the association with a very specific company. The other is conflation with crypto or hype, to some extent, securitization of virtual existence at large, which has its own benefits and utilities, but many other drawbacks, some of which seem particularly poorly timed with a macro cycle where many are struggling to afford their groceries. And so I actually think that there's active utility in stepping away from it. But the most important thing is to recognize that most of the leading individuals, whether we're talking about Satya Nadella at Microsoft or Mark Zuckerberg, Tim Sweeney, Jensen Huang at NVIDIA, talk about it as a successor state and evolution to the internet, predominantly an immersive or spatial 3D internet. They discuss it being a canvas for the real world upon which you can layer digital technologies. But that anchor in the internet is where we're misdirected. Very few people can define the internet today. It's literally a network of networks which use the internet protocol suite, it does not explain applications or use cases. It's actually enabling the exchange of data across heterogeneous and autonomous networks globally. There's a good reason why we struggle to say, okay, so what's our metaverse strategy is that same thing. If you're talking about Procter & Gamble or Colgate, the question of what's a network of networks is too abstracted from the question you're wanting to ask. It's What can we deliver? What can we know? How can we interact with a brand? Are we talking about it using the internet to process a payment in a retail store, to collect loyalty information, to send an email, or to deliver an app? Is it to share a video? That's the problem. You know, you look at the classic definitions of the internet, and we describe it multiple different layers. The application layer, the services layer, the protocol layer. The metaverse is the most abstracted totality. So to answer your question more specifically, it really depends for that same reason whether we're talking about one category or another. The internet is different things for different companies. 
Mercedes-Benz in most of the United States cannot sell a car direct to consumer, but most brands can. So that changes the relevance of the brands. But automotive is a great category. Let's use the forthcoming Vision Pro headset. You know, I purchased a vehicle recently. It's not a great process online. We've all done it. You look at the interior of a car and you're like, okay, great. It looks nice, but I don't really know what to do with this. I can't feel it. I don't know what it's like to drive. I don't even have a sense of the dimensionality. Of course, an automotive company has to have a website that looks good, that gives you an interior, a 360 view. But the idea of using any spatial system through which I can test out and feel that car without going to a dealership is intuitive. And even when I go to that dealership, I can take the car for a drive, but can I drive it in a high performance setting? No. Is a VR version of a Porsche 911 ever going to feel like the real thing? No. But is it going to be feel better than driving it in downtown Manhattan as on a test drive? Of course it is. And so those are some elements. But there's the other element, which is just how do you build your brand, your touch points, your ethos inside a virtual world? I have had thrilling, hysterical, memorable experiences in Fortnite carrying out my own version of Fast and the Furious with friends in a high-speed car chase. And you are bonded to that memory. You are bonded to the people you shared it with. And you are bonded to its full context, being the car you drove and the color it was in. In the same reason why we all gravitate towards songs we wouldn't normally like, but we listen to them on a getaway with our kids or our friends on a bachelor trip or bachelorette trip. And years later, that holds a place in our heart. And that, I think, is the big opportunity for these brands in these spaces. Yeah. You, you mentioned sort of the different leaders of those large tech partners we have um, and how one of the ways they view the metaverse is it's this canvas for the real world. Um, for me, that's something that I think is is graspable by brands, um, you know, with... with uh, roughly 80 to 90% of people around the world holding a smartphone, which is effectively an augmented reality device, um, I think brands have a way to to show up. Um, as you said, you know, how, do, how are brands building themselves inside virtual worlds? Um, I think it's also important that they say, you know, how do we, how do we look as a brand canvassed on top of the real world? Um, so the Vision Pro headset, with its pass-through, obviously would allow allow brands that opportunity in the same way that I suppose um, a Quest unit or an HTC or any any pass-through VR headset would allow. But um, do you, do you think the mobile phone is going to is already or is going to be the the sort of gateway into into this? For sure. So I love I love this line of thinking because I think it's easy to underestimate the advances that have been made in traditional form factors not designed for 3D, and to underestimate the impact it has had on applications. Let me give some history. In 2015, we had Snapchat launch its lens system for AR filters. In 2016, we had Pokemon Go come out. There were two interesting things of these two platforms. Number one is that in 2015, Snapchat didn't allow for its design studio. It wasn't open. You and I couldn't make a lens. A brand couldn't easily make a lens. And at first, Pokemon Go was not actually AR. You looked through the lens, but 
a Pokemon had no context. It would, if you had a Pikachu on the ground and you tipped your camera up, all of a sudden Pikachu was in the sky. Pikachu sat in front of, behind a tree. There was no interactivity. But in 2017, Apple started to introduce to its suite of iPhones a second back camera. We all remember that stock. And that was a depth sensor. They also released the iPhone 10, which had 30,000 infrared tracking points on your face. That's how we got face unlock and an emoji. And to support that, they released ARKit to make it easier for developers to build. Two months later, Snapchat launched its Lens Studio for UGC creation. And two months later, Pokemon Go added AR+, context AR, what we call occlusion. Pikachu would hide behind a tree. I could throw a ball at the tree and it would bounce off the tree. When you fast forward two years after that, Snapchat announces they have 140 million daily users of the lens. They have 600,000 UGC lenses. By 2021, they have 200 million users daily of their AR lenses. And they have 3 million lenses that have been created. Pokemon Go is larger than it has ever been. It's more fully functional than it has ever been. And that's augmented by further additions of lenses to the device, enhancements to AR kit, improvements to the front-facing camera, and more. It's easy to underestimate how many changes have happened over the next four years. I talk about two other technologies which are incredible. Back in 2019, Apple started deploying it's called Ultra Wide Band, UWB. These are sensors on your phone which deploy half a trillion to a trillion radar pulses per second, providing both intent and greater spatial awareness of where your device is. It's not like NFC. You know your keys are somewhere in the couch, but where exactly? They know precisely down to the half centimeter. They understand, are you walking on the inside of your house door or the outside? And the implications matter for automatically unlocking that door. In 2019, Apple started deploying LiDAR sensors in their high-end devices, which are now stocked in new iPhone models. The LiDAR sensors, which are the same as many autonomous cars use, allow you to create a 3D mesh in about two minutes. You can surround your new pairs of Air Jordans, and your child can use that LiDAR scanner to produce a 3D model of that sneaker that they can then transplant contextually into any physical space they want using their lens. In May of this year, Google launched its geospatial creator, bringing Google Maps to 3D and allowing you to create a world anchoring system for 3D objects. So your son or daughter could take their sneaker and place it precisely on the top of the school clock so that their friends can now see it, so that the school could interact with it. Now, we're still early. Again, it's important to recognize we have these tools launch sometimes before the technologies mature. That's a snap example. Or we have instances like Ultra Wide Band, where Apple has 2 billion devices, but they only started rolling this out selectively in 2019. So we're far from that being available to every user. But then, as with ARKit, we may find that they have a UWB platform in 2025, and all of a sudden, one and a half billion devices can be readily accessed by any developer to tap into these capabilities. And so we have to just 
keep in mind that these devices are not just widely deployed, they're vastly improving. They already have a lot more than you might think. And the use cases tell us that once they're activated, they take off. Sure. You've blown my mind. I mean, you've taken me down, I suppose, a five or six year memory, memory lane of immersive technology developments. And um, I can recall when, you know, LiDAR came out, you, you had um, businesses that sold real estate agents, big cameras that they had to carry, carry around. And suddenly, you know, the iPhone just replaced that technology. I, I think it was called Matterport, who pretty much, I, I think they still have their hardware for, for high precision solutions, but the mobile phone does probably a better job of what their early solutions did. Um, where I, what I find quite exciting about all of these advancements and, and specifically around the technology um, supporting and enabling the development and advancement of augmented reality is that they're all underpinned by artificial intelligence. Um, you know, in order for augmented reality or your phone's camera to perceive the environment um, in these different ways, um, I think it all does come down to to a level of artificial intelligence on the device, computer vision for for one as an example. Um, so we've we've seen this rise of AI as a as a trend. Um, I, I think it's it's probably hyped more closely with large language models, which has made you know, the technology accessible to ordinary people, um, whereas historically it's been accessible to developers. But what's exciting about immersive technology is that it's underpinned by AI. But how have you found AI impacting the metaverse? So, so not so much as one is a trend or a subject that was number one in the ranking last year and, you know, now the other is, is, is taking pole position. But in terms of convergence, I believe that magic in technology happens when different technologies collide and con converge. So, so how do you see AI and immersive technologies converging for, for the benefit? That's quite right. They are so fundamentally, technologically, experientially, and philosophically intertwined. I'll give you one such abstract example, which is in both instances, we're talking about the growth of synthetic existence or enhanced existence, right? The classical definition of metaverse is just the Greek etymology of it. It's greater than a universe which sits on top of and augments. Whether you're talking about a digital assistant in your ear or the network of cloud-connected computers crafting content for you, representing what's in your head into tangible data that's then printed out and affecting the real world, that's talking about synthetic existence. Again, a trend that we're decades into. But when we're talking about the practical applications, those are still many. Producing assets in 3D remains extraordinarily difficult. Typically, we talk about these different mediums. Text is typically the easiest for a human to create audio thereafter. Then we're talking about video. Then we're talking about a live element to all of those things. 3D tends to be the hardest. And that can be three-dimensional or physical three-dimensional, right? It's the same difference between we tend to say that a set is more difficult than a painting. The cost, difficulty, and timing of creating anything virtual is extraordinary. And we're seeing those costs, in particular within video, plummet rapidly. 
We had the CEO of Roblox say last month that he believes that we're fewer than five years away from being able to speak or text an entire world into existence. Not just the background, not just the context, but to say, this is what I want. And the idea that a child can bring to life their exact Jedi temple in their head, share it with their friends, is itself extraordinary when that has been the hardest thing for millennia, even as a commonly shared human experience. But the extensions for that, for a brand, for a company, for a factory, continue. The second element is to take a look at the synthesization of the real world. It's hard to create virtual assets. It's harder still to reproduce the real world. Tesla has announced that they're building a virtual simulation of all of San Francisco using Unreal. Think about the laborious task of Google Street View, sending cars down every road in the world every one to three years to create a 2D limited map. You now want to say we want to create a 3D map that is fully immersive and live. You need a ton. And I don't mean to just plug for AI, but a ton of effort and horsepower and computation and AI to make that even kind of financially practical. And then lastly, we're talking about the actual stitching together of place for us to be with interaction. You want to talk to any virtual agent who has personality, who has history, who grows with you, who remembers you, who's affected by you. That's where we're talking about the requirements of artificial intelligence overall. Sure. That's incredible. Um, I've, I've given a lot of thought around assets in the 3D modality and, and, and how they are the most difficult to create in comparison to video and imagery and, and text. And we, we do do a, a lot of work and have recently announced a partnership with NVIDIA um, to, to tackle some of these challenges and provide some early solutions for, for our clients in that realm, particularly in 3D asset creation, um, using generative AI to uh, create the environment in which those 3D assets sit so that brands can gain, I suppose, efficiencies, right? Um, we we didn't really talk, um, we, we kind of covered, I suppose, the slow burning and, and immediate metaverse opportunities. We've, we've touched on the AI thing, which I was really excited to get a, a, a view from you. But I'm, I'm keen to look at sort of the depth and breadth of, of AR as an immersive technology, um, as an immediate metaverse opportunity. We, we, we know, as you pointed out, that we shouldn't discount the existing hardware we have and how advanced that is. Um, but yeah, what is your view on, on how brands ought to approach this? Um, we touched a little bit on, on, on how they can approach the metaverse and, and the lessons that they've learned in, in the past around virtual worlds, but how, how, how should brands be, be approaching this? Um, you know, you mentioned Snapchat, and of course, Meta has uh, Instagram effects through Spark AR, um, and most platforms, I, I think, are starting to integrate AR. Um, it's a logical next step. Where, where, where do brands dive in here? Is it is it with the assets? Is it working, you know, to to create lenses or experiences and, and commerce? Yes, to all of these. It depends on which specific brand and company. You know, I'll give you an example of how it's partly contingent upon the literal footprint of those companies. One of my favorite examples of AI, which is really actually a neural network, is a neural radiance field or NERF as it's called. This comes primarily out of Google in 2019, 2020, but it's remarkable. 
What it does is it basically allows you to take a few different photos, not altogether dissimilar from how generative AI works. It fuses these photos together and then uses a neural network to assemble information for that which it lacks. Let me give an example. You have Panera and they have a store and they want to create a immersive version of Panera's in that specific location. You use a Nerf system to take a series of different photos and then turn it into that 3D model. But what does that 3D model have? Well, it even knows what the underside of the table is likely to look like. It can't see the corner. It can't see the back of the cash register. It can't see a specific doorknob. Well, it's using the neural network of context and clues to produce that model. So now you've virtualized your entire system. Now you start to ask about why does that matter for a brand? And I'm using Panera as no specific example. But you have a version where we've all gone on Yelp and we try to figure out is the location good? Is it the right mood and setting? How much space is there? I want to have a private conversation. Digitizing those spaces, traditionally hard. 2D image is not great. But now whether or not you're a Lego store or a Nintendo store, you are an automotive company or a factory plant, you can start to dimensionalize these spaces. On the consumer end, it means better planning. When you plug those into some other companies, because of course you need licenses to just put the interior of a storefront into Google, Google allows you to then do broader trip planning so that you can plug it into their immersive and AR models to figure out where you're going to park. You can actually use a time slider on Google's geospatial creator to play with time of day, traffic, and weather patterns, lighting. And so that's just one example of how if you have a storefront, you can start to use these technologies. We then start to get into the explicit AR applications. There's a lot of efforts right now to figure out how you can organically aid a customer in a store with an AR application. And there are some limitations, right? You don't want to provide an AR guide in your store all the time that means that Dale and Matt get exactly to where we want it to be and get out of the store without browsing, right? You want people to see your product. And there's a real tension between providing immediacy to the customer and providing exposure for additional sales. And so there are investigations to provide direction, but also targeted ads to occlude things that they need not see, but to elevate certain objects that they know you would be interested in. We also see some interesting applications with AR in retail stores, where all of a sudden you start to say that end of aisle displays, which are broadly targeted, but never personalized, start to be personalized. You and I go into a Costco next week. The end of aisle display is based on the average person going in on Saturday and the price that's paid. That's wasted inventory on you and I if we're not in that target market. But all of a sudden, a Costco AR app can say, I know exactly what Dale wants. I know what Dale's looked at, but not purchased. And so I can direct him to it and provide the contextual price promo integration bundle to get him there. And if it's apparel, I can start to prompt a workflow to try on these goods. All of these are preliminary. I can't tell you that there are many off-the-shelf tools for you to use them. But that's where a lot of the Vanguard is, at least on the retail and apparel side. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're seeing a lot of um, use cases coming out of our businesses of, of people augmenting product packaging um, with versioning for different re regions, allowing people to see 
inside a product box or package and bring the product outwards. Or in some cases, um, you know, we we we've done an AR mirror with Snap and Coca Cola actually, which was quite great. You could try on apparel and and through the purchase process get that. Um, another area that one of our businesses is actually quite in has done some interesting projects. A business called Smolin was years back using Google Glass to help the retail store owners and the merchandisers in the store um, lay out inventory and and do stock taking and, and that kind of thing. I would say it was probably a little bit away ahead of its time. Um, but for brands, I think there's this there's these two sides, right? There's the operational side of their business where these tools can start coming in quite handy. And then there's the consumer facing advertising side um, where these tools can can give them, I suppose, opportunities and advantages. In the context of those, I suppose, let's call it the back end and the front end, um, we're seeing things like Snap Spectacles advance, and I think in the coming five to ten years, we're going to see the emergence of a reasonably sized, great quality um, form factor of AR glasses. Um, do you think that is going to sort of open up the floodgates for AR as a technology jumping from the mobile device? Um, because what you have there is people walking around being able to view that canvas as you put it on top of the world without having to download an app or lift up their phone. Um, but in the context of consumer facing as, as well as the operational side of a business. I'm more skeptical about the timeline for glasses, certainly. I think one of the things that's that's really helpful about AR is that or unhelpful, but helpful to distinguish is there's sometimes a glossing over between glasses and goggles. And we talk about headsets, but usually there's a flattening of glasses and goggles. And, you know, I was listening to an interview with Neil Stevenson, who made the point that we all understand the huge opportunity for AR glasses because 70 to 80% of Americans wear glasses during the day. And therefore, anything you can do to supplement those capabilities should be an intuitive sale, in the same way that the Apple Watch was replacing an existing category. But very few people wear goggles in a day. They usually do it vocationally, and they usually take them off as soon as they're done, right? They're safety goggles. The timeline in my perspective to have lightweight aesthetic AR devices that are general purpose is still pretty far off. I'll give you an example, which is just to say that the Snap Spectacles, the most recent edition for which came out in 2021, they augmented about 10 to 20% of your vision with limited capabilities and their battery life was less than 30 minutes. And they weren't actually about diagnosing or scanning. There's no computer vision. It's just understanding a little bit about depth and layering things on top. The Vision Pros being $3,500 and requiring a battery pack while providing only two to three hours of usage for a very large device is, in my perspective, instructive. But we are certainly getting to the point where you know, look, I would guess that if that device doesn't come out until early 2024, most expect April, May, it's unlikely that we will even have a Vision Pro until 2026, right? They wouldn't replace the unit in 2025, given the cost. And so the timing when we start to talk about things that are properly portable and capable truly probably is 2930. And there are some who believe it's 
farther out for which the primary impediment is actually we don't have the optics or the battery life to do it. That is to say, I believe these devices can be extraordinarily helpful today. You see that with Tim Cook, speculative though many consider mixed reality to be. And I know that people like to point out that Tim Cook didn't wear the device. He exudes confidence in every interview. We may not yet know how to explain it to someone who's never worn these devices, but you can tell they believe these things are darn magical. But that just reiterates exactly what we mentioned earlier, which is the primary opportunity for now is that device that we already use. And we can easily underestimate how many people use them today. Again, 200 million Snap users. And those 200 million Snap users are creating on average a dozen to two dozen AR filters per day. There are over a billion daily users of Google Maps. The obvious opportunity to augment that with a better interface in AR is clear. Doesn't require new behavior, even just new interactions. So I think we're going to see a lot start to come there. That's fascinating. I, you know, I, I believe what you're talking about there is a whole bunch of creators using these new tools to build or optimize 3D assets, create the interactivity between them using these hardware platforms that we currently have, I suppose the mobile phone. Um, and as as the proficiency and, and number of people who, who learn how to work with this modality, it it's a great army of, of enablers for the hardware to catch up to, right? Um, so what I'm hearing, I mean, and and I like your timeline outlook. I, I generally am optimistic. Uh, and, and in most cases, I'm the one who has to tell people, actually, no, I think it's going to be a little longer th than you think. So I'm, I'm glad that you have a longer view th than me. Um, but I do hope this stuff comes sooner because I'm really excited about it. Um, do you have any ending, ending comments um, that you might want to share with us and our, our listeners, given the context of, of this season of Metaverse and more? Neil Stevenson tweeted out, I think two years ago, that his vision of the metaverse did not require, but was anchored around new form factors, AR, VR, wearable headsets. And he makes the point that that was an intuitive conclusion if you were in science fiction in the 80s or 90s. The idea that billions of people would regularly engage with synthetic existence using WASD on your keyboard for left, right, back and forward or that billions of people would interact with a four-inch touchscreen, which is imprecise in engagement and partially obscured when you use it. Made little sense. But as we look at the future as it turned out to exist, you and I talking in 2023, there are more than half a billion people interacting in these virtual worlds through these devices. There's billions of people doing it on a yearly basis. They're sophisticated, they're capable. In many instances, that's despite being only seven, eight, or nine. We have tended to underestimate how long it would take for a new form factor to be right, but simultaneously underestimate how capable users are, especially younger, in adapting to new technologies and experiences when they're fun, when they're organic, when they do something that connects them or does something that feels magical. That's one of the reasons why I'm optimistic for the next two to three years, despite 
the timeline for AR and VR. And it's one of the reasons why I think Apple remains the best in the business at devices for exactly the reasons of AR kit or IR sensors or ultra wideband. They know the future is a few years out and they plan for it by installing the requisite capabilities years in advance. That's so important because what does it mean? It means Apple for five years had said, we're going to get every customer to pay a little bit more to have a sensor they don't use. We're going to eat into our profit margins a little bit more to embed a sensor that we don't yet use. But the result is when that goes live, it looks like a whiplash adoption curve for us. But that's actually because it's been seeded for years. That's incredible. Um, and I'm excited that it's been seeded for years because I think there is so much that we can take advantage of at this point. But I'm afraid we've run out of time. Um, I know we could probably keep chatting all day long. Um, thank you, Matthew, for joining us today. Um, that wraps up this episode of the WPP Metaverse and More Academy podcast. I think for me, we've we've definitely learned that there are immediate opportunities that that our customers can take right now with the Metaverse. One being augmented reality on mobile phones that are extremely accessible. And for the rest of this series, we're going to be taking you through, um, you know, how to understand AR usage concepts in our next episode, followed by effective design techniques, considerations for building AR experiences, launching campaigns, and of course, measuring. So please join us for those up and coming series. If you've enjoyed this, please give us a great rating. Share this with your friends, follow us to know when future episodes are going to be available, and pound that like button. It's been fun, and I hope to be with you again. Until then, thank you for listening, and have a great day. Thank you for listening to the WPP Metaverse and More Academy podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. If you'd like to learn more about WPP, the creative transformation company, find us at WPP.com or send us a note to newbusiness at WPP.com. That's it for today. We look forward to seeing you in the Metaverse.